My name is Michael Flake. I am one of the pastors here. Good to be together as a church family this morning, online, in the field. So fun to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. Before I jump into the sermon today, we need to take just a moment to celebrate uh, something. I don't know if you're aware, a minor miracle happened in the town of Davidson on Tuesday, which is that the rezoning was approved five to nothing. So I serve on the town planning board, so I, I know just enough about how voting in Davidson works, and five nothings don't happen on planning projects. You get four ones and three twos a lot, but no five O's. So uh, just a beautiful display of the power of God and a, a gentle reminder to us that if we stay focused on the mission, he'll take care of the hard stuff. So just a beautiful thing. So the land has been rezoned. If you don't know how rezonings work, though, there's a bunch of clerical tasks that follow on to the rezoning. So we won't actually have the rezoning in hand for a little while longer. Then when that happens, we'll have 30 days to close. So when it all boils down, we should, we should own the land on South Main Street uh, by the end of the year. By the end of the year. That'll also give us a chance to map out what the coming months and years should look like if we can stay a little bit ahead of schedule or maybe even be a little aggressive on what it would mean to per not only have the land but then to start to think towards towards building a building on it so uh, again this is a marathon not a sprint and we're not going to pretend it's a sprint you can't sprint for six, 26 miles however long a marathon is 26.2 excellent i have a sticker on my car that says 0, 0.0 so i don't always know how long marathons are, but uh, it is a marathon, not a sprint, but we want to just pay attention to, to how we can do it uh, as well, but also as reasonably quickly as, as possible. So we're really praying and watching how Rooted Giving comes in at the end of this year. That'll give us a real good indication of how ahead of schedule we are and can continue to plan to be. So all that to say, praise God and thank you for the ways you have prayed and been so generous and will continue to be. And uh, we press on. We press on. Well, today's sermon, uh, actually for the next few weeks, we're going to take on a, a couple uncomfortable subjects and hopefully do it in a way that makes them a little less uncomfortable. This week and next week, we're looking at the impact of faith on our political engagement. And then we're going to take a handful of weeks to look at the impact of our faith on financial matters. And then if there's anybody left in the church, we will move on to other topics. Politics is a struggle for us, isn't it? It can be so divisive. Politics can lead, in fact, it has led to dissension in families, dissension in church families, dissension in communities, dissensions in countries. We praise God that in our church family, we have a wide variety of political beliefs, and yet we stay unified on what is most important, which is the work of Jesus on our behalf and the way of Jesus that he calls us to follow. The work and the way of Jesus. Unity is something we all have to guard closely. 
especially around politics, because it can be very divisive. It can and has caused a lot of dissension. It is possible to begin to view our faith in Jesus through a political lens. It is possible, believe it or not, for Christianity to become highly politicized. It is possible for our identities to get so wrapped up in our political beliefs, our political causes, our political candidates, we cannot imagine walking alongside people who don't share our love for those beliefs, those candidates, and those causes. That may be part of why politics can be so divisive. Our identities get really wrapped up in our political engagement. Our identities can get really twisted and inter- twisted into, intertwined with our political engagement. So much so that if we're not careful, over time we may see no difference between asking, do you agree with me and do you love me? Do you agree with me and do you have a basic level of intelligence? Do you agree with me and do you really love Jesus? So my goal over these next few weeks is to help us find a way to view political engagement through the lens of faith, not vice versa, not to see faith through the lens of political engagement, but to view political engagement through the lens of faith. In other words, to find a Jesus Christ-centered way to engage in voting and political advocacy, a Christ-centered way to engage in these things. So that if you follow Jesus, or if in the future you ever come to follow Jesus, today or sometime in the future, you don't have to view faith and politics as totally separate things. You can view political engagement, whatever that might be for you, as something you do in a Jesus Christ-centered way. I'm also trying to broaden our thinking beyond just how we vote. It's a rare thing for Christians to actually have a vote. If you go to most of the world today, or much of the world throughout history, people don't have a vote. You're, I, you know, I didn't vote for you, as the famous Monty Python movie says. Well, you don't vote for a king. So in the U.S., as Christians, or those considering Christ in the U.S., yes, we have a say in who gets elected. We each have a small say in who gets elected. But no matter who gets elected, we also have the opportunity to advocate directly to our elected leaders on issues that matter to us. In other words, political engagement is far bigger than who wins elections. So today, I want to begin with what I would consider one of the more life-changing passages from the Bible. It's Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 2. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 2, says this. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Wow. Mm. I could hear your lives changing as I read that passage. Does anyone need a a tissue here? We have just a few. What the passage tells us is that in Jesus' inner circle, there is Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot a tax collector, and a zealot. In fact, these are the only two that get descriptions about what it is that they do. Some people are, well, this was his other name, and this was who his dad was, and this was his brother. But these two are given descriptors about themselves, and they're the only two that get them. 
Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot. That tells me the descriptors are important. If I almost try to read behind the, the scripture, it makes me think the disciples may have called them these things almost as a joke. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot. What are a tax collector and a zealot? Well, the descriptors describe they had a view on the major political issue of their day, which was, what do we do about the Roman Empire? Matthew, as a tax collector, actually worked for the Roman government the Roman government that was occupying the land of the Jewish people. Matthew believed enough in the Roman government that he helped them systematically extract the wealth from his own people, the Jewish people, in a way that would line Rome's pockets, and at least for a time would line his own pockets. That's a tax collector. Simon, on the other hand, is a zealot, meaning he belonged to the Jewish political movement that wanted to violently overthrow the Roman government. He and his comrades wanted to run the government out of the, the Roman government out of the Jewish territory. In fact, they carried daggers with them in case the opportunity ever arose for an insurrection. If you thought the Republicans and Democrats in your community group had differing views, this is a tax collector and a zealot. Someone who trusts Rome so much he works for them versus someone who distrusts Rome so much he wants to violently overthrow it. How does Jesus resolve this huge philosophical disagreement between Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot? Here's my point. As best we know, he never did. Jesus was far more interested in unifying people in our diversity instead of delivering us from our diversity. Jesus desires to unify us in our diversity more than to deliver us from our diversity, which gets us to our passage for today, what Mandy read read earlier, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 13. It begins by saying this, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. The motto of our denomination is, in the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity or love. We use the term non-essentials, but the early Christians would have used the term disputable matters. I wonder why they called them disputable matters. I'm guessing because they had disputes about them. And it was causing a problem. Because Jesus had left them with a mission, an essential, that God exists, that God created the world, that even when the world turned away from God, God did not turn away from the world. In fact, God came to earth as Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, and he lived and he suffered and he died, and he never forget this part, resurrected so that you and I could live forever, forgiven, free, eternally reconciled to our Creator. A, a reconciled relationship with God is not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's a gift. It's a gift we receive as we trust ourselves, both in life and in death, as we trust ourselves into the hands of Jesus. And then God, the Holy Spirit, comes into the life of everyone who follows Jesus. He empowers us, the Spirit does, to spread the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, into every nook and cranny of our lives, the mission and the ministry of Jesus into every nook and cranny of our communities, even to the very ends of the earth. As Jesus said, God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. That, it turns out, is a big job. And the early Christians were discouraged that they were spending so much time disputing 
when Jesus had called them to spread his message and his ministry into every nook and cranny of the world. What were they disputing about? Well, as best we can tell in this passage, they're disputing two things. They're disputing eating meat, and they're disputing celebrating holidays. Things we don't even talk about anymore. Oh, wait. But in their culture, what they were disputing is that a lot of the meat sold in the market had been used as sacrifices to pagan gods. So, for example, a cow would be sacrificed to Jupiter, and then when the cow was properly sacrificed, they'd take the meat out to the market and sell it. And some Christians, probably those who had converted from paganism, were saying, I'm not touching that meat. And then other Christians were saying, hey, what's the big deal? Like, Zeus ain't, or did I say Jupiter? Okay, Jupiter, Zeus, are they the same thing? Okay, Zeus ain't even real, right? So what's the big deal? That's all fine and good, but what happens when the church potluck rolls around? Do you serve the meat sold in the markets or not? The same is true with holidays. Some Christians, probably those who had converted from Judaism, still wanted to celebrate the Jewish holidays, just now seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the holiday. And other Christians were saying, man, you need to leave that old stuff behind and quit celebrating those holidays. So what do you do when Rosh Hashanah rolls around? Does the church have a service or not? Disputes arose. Disputes arose. Much as you can imagine, disputes arose between Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot over political engagement. So I want to apply some of the insights of Romans chapter 14 on how to handle disputable matters to begin to look at a Christ-centered approach to political engagement. A Christ-centered approach to political engagement. Are we ready? They said eagerly. Yes, number one, number one, number, 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 number one. A Christ-centered approach to political engagement, number one is to have convictions. Have convictions. Verse 5 says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So when you hear me say something like, political engagement is a non-essential of the Christian faith or a disputable matter of the Christian faith, meaning Christians of sincere conviction can reach different conclusions, then you might say, well, then it really doesn't matter, does it? But the scripture, God through the scripture is saying something very different. He is telling us to study disputable matters thoroughly, so much so that we can have a conviction. Study the referendums on the ballot. Study the people seeking elected office, whether it's the president or the dog catcher or people on the planning board. There's some real jokers on that planning board, one in particular. Study the people who are wanting to serve in office. Gain an understanding of the issues of the day. It's okay to have convictions in these matters. In fact, the Bible doesn't just say it's okay. The Bible encourages you and me to have convictions on these matters. Matthew, the tax collector, had political convictions. Simon, the zealot, had political convictions. In fact, all the other disciples had political convictions too. And what was different about them is not necessarily the content of their convictions, but the strength at which they held those convictions. 
the other disciples did not ascribe the same importance to the political issues of the day that Matthew and Simon did. And what Jesus did is he held this whole group together and made room for each of them in God's family. God has made room for you, whether you be a tax collector or a zealot or something in between, has made room for you in God's family. Just because something is a non-essential matter of faith, God still invites us to study the matter thoroughly and have conviction, so much so that we could act on that conviction. That's number one. Number two is to allow Jesus Christ to mold your conviction to honor him. Allow Jesus Christ to mold your convictions to honor him. Verse 6 says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, I was not an English major at Davidson. But I don't believe you have to be an English major at Davidson. Is anyone here an English major at Davidson? Hollins Worsley. Excellent. I don't believe you have to be as smart as Hollins, though, to get the point of the verse today. I'm going to read it again. See if you catch the big idea of the verse. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. What is the big idea? Does so to the Lord. Whatever conviction you have do so to the lord so yes as a follower of jesus or if you become a follower of jesus you are invited to study you are invited to have convictions and this is the key it's not the sort of conviction where we hold it tight to our chest and say this is my conviction and all my friends agree with me and all the channels i listen to say the same thing so there Instead, what the Bible is teaching us is we hold our convictions out here to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, does this conviction honor you? Does this way of engaging politically honor you? And as we grow in our faith, as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible by ourselves and in community groups and in worship services, we get a better sense of who God is. We get a better sense of what God loves. We get a better sense of what God does not love. We get a better sense of what honors God and what does not honor God. We get a better sense of what God desires for his children and for his creation and a better sense of what God desires his children and his creation to be delivered from. We see God more clearly. And as we hold our political convictions out here, doesn't mean we don't have them, doesn't mean we don't act on them, but as we hold them out here, we allow God the Holy Spirit to mold those convictions. The Holy Spirit starts to reshape our hearts, reshape our minds. This changes many areas of our lives, including it begins to change often the content and the strength of our political convictions. I know that's true for me, that as a Christian, both the content and the strength of different political convictions have changed. And this doesn't mean all Christians are going to reach the same conclusion on all matters of politics. There are billions of Christians. 
All Christians are not going to reach the same conclusions on all matters of politics, either in content or strength of conviction. Any more so than the early Christians were going to agree on whether or not to eat the meat or whether or not to celebrate the holidays, any more than Simon and Matthew were going to agree with each other. Christians have a deeper unity than uniformity. That gets me to number three. If you thought one and two were fun, wait for three. Number three, how to have a Christ-centered approach to political engagement. Number three is to avoid contempt and judgment for Christians who reach different conclusions. Avoid contempt and judgment for Christians who reach different conclusions. Verse three, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. So I'm told in matters of political engagement, it is possible to respond to others with contempt. It is possible to respond with contempt, to say, oh, I thought they were intelligent. It is possible to respond with judgment. Oh, I thought they were a good person. Oh, I thought they were a good Christian. Romans 14 reminds us to have a different response for our fellow Christians, whether in our church family or beyond. And that response is, God has accepted them. In fact, follower of Jesus, God has accepted you. In all your complexity, with all your convictions, with your identity wrapped up in so many things, through Jesus Christ, God has accepted you. That's the good news. Now, here's the hard news that is actually good news. God has also accepted every Christian you meet in all their complexity, in all their convictions, in all their identity wrapped up in so many things. Now, certainly... Many of us know what I might call cultural Christians. We have those in the southeast, but I've traveled to other parts of the country. Turns out you get them everywhere. Cultural Christians. Actually, some of us have been cultural Christians, where we consider ourselves a Christian because of where we were born or the family we were born into. But if you really push us at a heart level, we have not actually come to trust in Jesus. So that's not what I'm talking about right now. Cultural Christians, including some of us, what cultural Christians need to do is to walk into the open arms of Jesus. Walk into the open arms of Jesus and receive the eternal gift of forgiveness he offers to us through his sacrificial love. But when I'm talking to a fellow Christian of sincere conviction, who has a heart-level trust of Jesus, even if just a little bit, just a little bit of trust of Jesus... And at some level, they are learning to hold their convictions out here for Jesus to mold. Then those words echo in my mind. God has accepted them. And I find that truth changes my tone. Makes me more eager to listen. More eager to learn. How did you arrive at that conclusion? And then remembering to turn my mouth off before I say, because at first I thought you were crazy. A little more eager to learn. 
a little more eager to listen, to discuss. Now, of course, there can also be times for debate. There is a right time and a right place to have good, vigorous debate about things that matter. On a side note, I have yet to be convinced that social media is ever that time or place. That's a disputable, non-essential matter. I'm just saying my conviction on it. But there are appropriate times and places for debate. You may not change the other person's content. You may not change the other person's conviction. But my point here would be that the tone of the debate can communicate that because God has accepted you, I am relying on his strength to not treat you with contempt or judgment. That's hard. (laughs) That's radical. If you think Matthew the tax collector or Simon the zealot is the radical in this passage, you are wrong. The radical in the passage is Jesus, who's holding them together. That gets us to number four, number four, number, 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 number. Finally, finally, number four. This is only part one of a two-part. Number four, live as someone accountable to and accepted by God. Live as someone who is accountable to and accepted by God. Romans 14, 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So a Christ-centered approach to political engagement, have convictions, allow Christ to mold those convictions to honor him, avoid contempt and judgment when Christians reach different conclusions, and finally live as someone who is accountable to and accepted by God. This passage is holding those two things in tension. As a follower of Jesus, you are accepted by God. Nothing will ever change that. And as a follower of Jesus, you are accountable to God. Nothing will ever change that. And the struggle comes when we focus on one and forget the other. If I'm only accepted, I'm going to do whatever I want. If I'm only accountable, well, then God probably doesn't love me today because look what I just did. But you, I, we are accepted and accountable. As you navigate through life, as you navigate through this week, as we face a tough situation with a friend, with a co-worker, with a family member, as we engage politically, follower of Jesus, you are accepted and you are accountable. Romans chapter 14 reminds us that one day we're going to meet somebody famous. At the end of our lives, we will meet Jesus face to face, and we will give an account of our lives to him. And you may think that sounds horrible, and that you won't be able to stand up through it. But Romans chapter 14 says that Jesus is going to strengthen you. Jesus is going to hold you up so that you can stand before him as his follower. You don't have to be afraid of the day you meet Jesus face to face. In fact, you can look forward to that day. Through Jesus Christ, 
you are accepted and accountable. You and I can live accepted and accountable. That's not meant to scare you. It's meant to set you free. It's meant to set you free to live differently. It's meant to set you free to be transformed. Meant to set you free to hold your convictions out here, even as they are shaped and you act on them. It makes you and me free to celebrate these words. That if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Don't you imagine that sort of powerful and sacrificial love molded Matthew the tax collector, molded Simon the zealot? Have you seen that sort of powerful and sacrificial love molding you as well? Are you the same person you were when you first began to follow Jesus? I pray we continue to see in our church family this sort of powerful and sacrificial love in that we learn to love one another as we avoid the divisiveness of our current age. And as we continue to love a hurting world by avoiding the apathy that can be so tempting when things get tough. So this is part one of two parts. You'll be glad to know the second part is about what it truly means to love one another. This is trying to outline what to do with the more disputable parts. Next week we will look at what is indisputable which is to love one another. But let me ask you to reflect on this question as I sort of wrap up. Based on Romans 14, how might you engage politically in a more Jesus Christ-centered way? Based on Romans 14, how might you engage politically in a more Jesus Christ-centered way? To study, to have convictions, to hold them out here, to let God mold them, to avoid contempt, to avoid judgment for those and those Christians who reach different conclusions, to act on your convictions, to live as both accepted and accountable, to show a divided world what the love of Jesus looks like on display how it overcomes divisiveness, how it overcomes apathy. For some of us, it may well be to begin to act on our convictions even if all our friends who are Christians don't agree. The thing I kind of wonder is if Matthew the tax collector and the Simon the zealot changed over time. Well, I mean, we don't totally know if their political convictions did or did not. But Matthew would go on to watch the Roman Empire conspire with the religious leaders and kill Jesus. Simon, who had hoped for a violent overthrow of the government, watched a violent government kill Jesus. Did he realize you can't overcome someone with their own weapon? That Jesus was preaching a different message? So we don't know. What we do know is that Jesus unified them. Jesus unifies us in our diversity. And over time, 
molded us to walk together day by day as people both accepted and accountable. So these are not easy times and these are not easy topics. I pray God's word guides us in how to navigate them well. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever he's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a personal moment for prayer. Lord, you who made room in God's family for Matthew, for Simon, and for the disciples who didn't think this was quite that important, we praise you that you continue to make room in God's family for so many different people. We praise you that you are the true radical of this passage and that you call us to love one another even as you know how hard that's going to be. Lord, some of us keep you at arm's length because we're afraid our politics don't line up with what Christians should think. And yet you call us to see it the other way which is to invite you into all areas of our lives. And yes, things may change, but they'll change for the better. You're not making cookie-cutter followers. You are causing each of us to come truly alive. And so, Lord, I pray we would be drawn in by the simplicity and also the radical nature of your message to be accepted by God and accountable for the way that we live, not to scare us, but to set us free. So, Lord, I pray in these closing moments and songs we will continue to open our hearts and minds more and more to you and that as we do, you will transform us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we'd love to pray for you. Let us know how we can do that in the field by putting a prayer request in the wicker basket online, going to sending us an email, davidsonprayer at lakeforest.org. You can also make a contribution online if you're able and willing at lakeforest.org slash give. In the field, the wicker baskets. We love you guys. Let's worship together.